Hi, I'm Dave Perkins. And I'm Shari Tishman. Welcome to Episode 3 of Season 2 of our Thinkability Podcast. It's a podcast we like to say for people like us who like to think about thinking, and it has a bit of a tilt toward those of us who are interested in teaching thinking or otherwise cultivating thinking in whatever setting we're in, whether it's schools, museums, workplaces, or even the dinner table. Today, our theme is thinking routines. Now, you may have heard of them, and maybe you even use them. Thinking routines are a technique for fostering better thinking and teaching thinking that came out of Project Zero a number of years ago. Over the years, they've spread quite widely. They now see some use in schools, museums, and workplaces in various settings around the world. This is an introduction for those who don't know much about thinking routines, plus some background for those who do. Well, listen, let's start with a little definition that we'll say now, but we'll flesh out as we go along. In a sentence, thinking routines are easy-to-use mini-strategies with a short number of steps, usually two or three, that elicit thinking and that can be used across a wide variety of contexts and topics. Okay, so that may sound a bit general or abstract, but to give you a feel for what thinking routines are like in action, Dave and I are going to quickly sketch what it's like to use two different thinking routines. And we're going to use the same object for both routines. After that, we'll stand back and say more about the history of thinking routines, what makes them so sticky, that is what makes them so easy and engaging to use, and we'll say something about where to find them. Okay, so let's get started. The topic we've chosen to use to demonstrate thinking routines on, it's a physical object, and it's something tangible that we have right in front of us, and in fact, most of us are attached to it. Our object is the human hand. And the first thinking routine that we're going to use is sometimes called a classic thinking routine. It's called See, Think, Wonder. The title of the routine pretty much tells you exactly what the three prompts of the routine are. They're, what do you see? What do you think? And what do you wonder? Let's give it a try with the hand that we have in front of us, Dave. Start us off. Take a close look at your own hand. What do you see? Well, as I take a look, one thing that really stands out to me is the opposable thumb. That's kind of famous. It's really pretty visible compared to thumb-like appendages of non-human animals. Let's see what else. It really strikes me how very jointed our fingers are. Taking a look, I count one, two, three joints, including the one that's part of the palm of the hand, and they're tight to one another, and they generate a lot of flexibility. How about you, Shari? What comes to mind? Well, as you were talking, I was looking at my own hand, and I'm looking at the back of my hand, and I was noticing how thin the skin is. It's sort of right over bone, so thin, and it sort of wrinkles easily. And I was noticing fingernails, and sort of the top of the fingernail and how that's a little bit goes bit, a bit beyond the flesh. And then the bottom of the fingernail, there's a cuticle there. There's, you know, there's so, once you start to look, there is so much to notice, but this is a demonstration. So let's move on to the next step. What do we think? So Dave, what do you think? What thoughts do you have about the human hand? Well, I guess the biggie that comes to mind for me is the significance of the opposable thumb, which probably some of us have read a bit about. It gives us such incredible flexibility for gripping, 
and throwing and carrying. It's just a big element in the flexibility and adaptability of the human condition. Let's see, what else? Another thought is that we have both fine control and gross control with our hands. We can pick up tiny things and manipulate them and so forth, but we can also handle big things like uh, lugging a pumpkin around or uh, throwing a spear or something like that. So there's this range of flexibility, which is really quite striking. How about you, Shari? Well, as you were talking, I couldn't help move my hand around and open it and close it and use that fine motor control and gross motor control. And one of the things I was thinking is that I was noticing that a hand is closable. And I was thinking about how we enclose things in our hands and we can even hide things in our hands. So that's kind of interesting. Another thing I was thinking about in a, in a different direction is just the communicative power of touch. We touch things with our hands. Sometimes we touch other people's hands. And we just, there's so much that we can communicate through the touch of a hand. So that's kind of interesting too. You know, again, there's so much to think about with a hand, but let's, let's move to our, the final step of the routine, which is wonder. Dave, what do you wonder about? What questions do you have about the hand? Well, let's see. One thing I wonder is, what are fingernails really for? Are they just evolutionary residuals because our ancestors had claws and so forth and so on? Or do they do things for us, like maybe protect the ends of our fingers? Yeah, sometimes your fingernails help you pick up tiny things. Maybe that's basically it. But I do wonder about what all that is. After all, we have to take care of those darn fingernails. How about you, Shari? Hmm. There's a lot to wonder about. One thing I wonder about is what are nature's variations on hands? I mean, how are hands related to paws or fins? What other quote unquote hands has nature made? You know, again, there's just so many questions to ask here, but I wonder if we've said enough with this routine, Dave, and maybe let's transition to still sticking with a hand, but using our second thinking routine. Do you want to get us started with that? Sure. Another thinking routine with a kind of family resemblance is called Parts, Perspectives, and Me. The three prompts are, what are the parts? What perspectives can we consider this thing from? And the personal one, how am I connected to this sort of thing? How about kicking us off on this one, Shari? It's an easy start because the parts step is pretty similar to the C step. We noticed a lot of different parts of the hand. In fact, Dave, you started us out by really noticing the joints and really how the parts and how they were connected to the different parts of the hand. So I won't say more there, but maybe I'll just move right into the second prompt, which is what perspectives can we consider this from? And we've already alluded to some. I mean, there's sort of the evolutionary perspective of how did hands come to be and what, how else might things like hands evolve? Another sort of different perspective is a biographical perspective. You know, I think about looking at the condition of someone's hand and how that can tell you something about what that person might do for a living, what that person might do with their hands. So there's sort of a biographical perspective. How about you, Dave? What are some perspectives that are intriguing to you? 
I guess one thing that comes to mind is the sheer impressive range of what can be done with our hands and how that cuts across so many facets of life. We can handle things, we can play musical instruments, we can scratch an itch, sometimes we use sign language. It just seems to go on and on. Talk about versatility. <laughs> there you have it. Well, let's move to the third step, me. That step asks, how am I involved or connected to this? What do you think, Shari? <laughs> well, my first thought is sort of literal. I'm connected to my hand by my wrist. But more broadly, I mean, I think the immediate connection I make is that I live in a world where almost everything I use and touch has have had hands involved in the making of them, whether it's building or the hands involved in using machines that make things, but hands just play such a role in the physical life of my world. Another connection that goes in a kind of a different direction is thinking about the metaphor of a helping hand. And that metaphor of lending a helping hand is a metaphor that's personally meaningful to me. How about you, Dave? I guess just personally, one thing I think about is my father. My father had a couple of different professions he pursued at the same time. And one of them was as a carpenter. And he was just so good at it and so good at shaping things with his hands, wood, putting in ceilings, even making carvings. I have some carvings that he made. He had a kind of a nimbleness and craft that's a long way from anything I have. And that really sticks with me. A lovely story. Thank you. Okay. Well, there are two routines, two super quick examples of See, Think, Wonder, Hearts, Perspectives, Me, both used on the same object, the hand. And it's fascinating, isn't it, how much territory we've just covered in five or six minutes using these two routines to explore the hand in its many, many dimensions. You know, just to cap off the examples, it's worth pointing out that while we used the hand as our object, there's so many different things we could have used these two routines on. I mean, just for quick examples, we could have used them on a work of art, both of them. We could have used either or both of these routines on a short poem or a stanza of a longer poem. We could have used these routines on a paragraph of text. We could have used these routines on a law or thinking of the U.S. Constitution, a constitutional amendment, just a few phrases, the cover of a book, the table of contents of a book. There are just so many things that these two routines could be used on. Yeah, a historical artifact, arrowheads, for instance, a very old pair of shoes, images and theories from science, even something technical like Newton's laws, you can do that, or a mathematical formula, objects from the natural world, tree, leaf, seashell, or hands. <laughs> there are so many great things to use thinking routines on. Here's a question for you. Why might we want to use something like a thinking routine? Well, here's a bit of the backstory. For a number of years, colleagues and we have been working on approaches to better thinking, giving special attention to thinking dispositions. You may remember we talked about dispositions in our first season of Thinkability. That was episode four. Thinking attitudes and habits of mind like curiosity, concern for evidence, creativity, Open-mindedness, all those count as dispositions. Also, in this season's first episode, we talked about dispositions. 
So we wanted a flexible format for fostering better thinking in school and out of school that promoted such attitudes and habits of mind. So thinking routines are mostly research-based. We try to test them to make sure the language and steps work well for a range of ages and bring out those dispositions. As it turns out, they do work pretty well, and there are several factors that make them work. We'd like to tell you about these factors. For a preview, there's the sticky factor, the everyone everywhere factor, the visibility factor, and just to get a little academic about it, the epistemology factor. Let's kick off. Shari, what can you tell us about the sticky factor? Mm, several ingredients of the sticky factor. Sticky is sort of what makes them so usable. One is that there's two or three at the most, four simple steps. Thinking routines have sticky names and easy to grab moves and sequences. Like the name of the move tells you what to do. What do you see? What are the parts, for example? And the flow of the steps just easily moves from one step to another. So see, think, wonder. Very clear, very sticky. Parts, perspectives, me. Same thing. Another bit of the stickiness is that they can work really easily across contexts and kinds of objects. They just transfer very easily and widely, which, if you use them regularly, makes them habit-forming. And that's by design. They were designed to be used over and over again. They were actually designed to be sticky. Another factor in their stickiness is, put it in a sort of fancy way, they invite low bar participation, but they have a high bar yield. They give a low bar to learners. They're accessible to learners with a range of different abilities, a range of different proclivities, and learners can contribute in different ways and in different amounts and still have their contributions be meaningful. And then sort of the yield by everybody's contributions is pretty high, as we saw with the hand. We just talked about it for five or six minutes, but we really made quite some inroads into thinking deeply about what a hand is. Lastly, another sticky factor that I think is really important, and we mentioned this earlier, they elicit thinking and they quickly become kind of intrinsically engaging for the user. More you see, the more you notice, the more questions you ask, the more you wonder, the more questions you have, and so forth. So if you're somebody who's listening, who's used thinking routines, you may have noticed that they quickly engage people and actually they can sometimes be fun to use. Yeah, you know, they're especially engaging to use with other people in pairs, small or large groups. This very vividly demonstrates a kind of a whole is bigger than the sum of the parts effect. People bounce off one another. You really feel as though you're part of a process when you use thinking routines together with other people. And that feeling is compelling. It's sticky. Well, there we go. So that's the sticky factor of thinking routines, but we promised we'd mention a few other factors. We're going to talk about the everyone, everywhere factor in a moment. But Dave, maybe before we do, why don't we have another example of a thinking routine? Sure. Well, here's one that I kind of like and sees quite a bit of use. It's called I used to think, now I think. This routine pretty much explains itself, as routines tend to do. You've been at a meeting, read a book, watched a documentary, had a really interesting conversation with a couple of friends. You want to take stock of what difference it all made to you. So you say to yourself, I used to think, and now I think. I used to think such and such, but now I think something 
a little different. And you do that several times, reaching for headlines about what really stood out for you. Maybe you've changed your mind about something. Maybe you understand something better. This not only reviews where you're at so far, but helps you keep it in mind going forward. Like most thinking routines, it's not just for kids. We use it in adult settings, like, for instance, the ends of conferences. But it's fine for kids, too. It's kind of a self-guided review process that zooms in on what meant the most to me. It's worth mentioning that many educators use this routine as part of their assessment toolbox. They use it with students after an arc of instruction, a unit, or other extended learning experience. And this reveals a lot about what learners think they've learned. So that brings us to another big theme we wanted to talk about, the everyone everywhere factor. All right, absolutely everyone, absolutely everywhere, maybe a bit of an exaggeration, but Shari, how would you fill this one in? Well, as we mentioned, you know, thinking routines are designed to be used widely and broadly. Thinking about the the routine that you just mentioned, Dave, used to think, now I think, you know, there are just endless situations where one can use this routine, whether you're very young or an adult, you could use it to take stock of any kind of experience, I mean, from a history lesson or a math lesson or a lesson in school to a discussion of an artwork. You could even use it after following your favorite sports teams for a season, just sort of thinking, I used to think this, now I think that. That routine can be used just in endless contexts. And it's really the same with the other two routines that we talked about, See, Think, Wonder, and Parts, Perspectives, Me. Those routines aren't specific to particular topics or disciplines They work really quite easily, unless you're talking about very, very young learners. But even with somewhat young learners and adults, they're meaningful. And the reason that they can kind of work, this is the everyone everywhere bit, you know, across ages is because users, when we use thinking routines, they automatically adjust the depth of ideas that they generate to where the users are in life. So what a six-year-old will say to what do I see or what do I think or what do I wonder may be very different than what a 60-year-old says, but both users can address those questions in a meaningful way. And in terms of quite young children, we've learned by talking to educators for so many years and watching what educators do that if a routine might be hard for young learners, teachers are quite good at getting learners over the hump by sometimes using simpler language And often by offering a tangible, child-friendly example, you know, some that come to mind for me that I've seen is in preschool, using a photograph with, say, the routine See, Think, Wonder. I've seen a beautiful example of uh, a kindergartner educator using See, Think, Wonder with a weed growing in the crack of a sidewalk with a kitchen utensil. I saw another example once of a first grade teacher using a routine on a two-digit number, which she put up in front of the class and had the class talk about. As with the human hand, when we were talking about our hand, sometimes topics that seem quite simple that are accessible to young learners can also be very worthwhile for older and adult learners as well. By the way, in the spirit of everyone, everywhere, it's worth adding that thinking routines don't just come from us. Often teachers or anyone make up their own in the general style. And that's not that hard to do. And that's great. Don't look for the official, final, approved list of thinking routines. You don't see what you want. Make it up. I like that. And actually, it's great to see the thinking routines that educators make up. 
But I, I do want to sort of say a little caveat. It's important to keep in mind that just not any kind of short little strategies counts as a thinking routine. I often use little short routines for things like, you know, remembering the rules of grammar or recalling the steps of a task, you know, sort of a mnemonic little strategy. And these routines are really helpful in life, but they're not thinking routines. And what makes thinking routines special, among many other things, is that one, the prompts elicit learners' own ideas and impressions. You know, what do you see? What do you notice? What questions do you have? That's a super important part of what a thinking routine is. And another really important part is that when thinking routines are being used, they sort of vividly demonstrate, and by that I mean they almost make palpable thinking in action. That might be palpable through words or in writing. And actually, Dave, that brings us to another really important factor, the visibility factor. Ah, the visibility factor. Well, happily, this one is easy. Thinking usually works best when we get it out there into the world in the form of, say, a conversation or something jotted on paper or a concept map on paper or in an email or even something just said to ourselves aloud. It's a kind of distancing. It lets us see or hear our thinking so far. And that really helps to take stock of it carefully and to take it further. Thinking routines support that process. They invite words or images responding to each of the two or three or four cues in the routine. In fact, thinking routines were originally developed as part of a project called Visible Thinking. With thinking routines, or even without them, making your thinking visible to yourself is a powerful move. Of course, you've probably noticed that visible doesn't just mean visible to our eyes. It means sometimes audible or in some situations touchable. In other words, out there in the world, not just in our head, out there in the world accessible to our senses. And now for the six-syllable factor. The epistemology factor. Hey, Shari, how about you tackle this one? <laughs> sure. Well, epistemology is a fancy word, but here's what we mean. Thinking routines communicate important messages about how knowledge and understanding are built. And epistemology is about what knowledge is and how it comes to be. And the message that they communicate to learners is so important. It's that your part of the story. You, the learner, the user of the thinking routine, have something to add, something crucial, your own ideas, your own perceptions, your own impressions. And through your participation, through using a thinking routine, you can see that knowledge, understanding keeps evolving, that it's a collaborative enterprise. Knowledge isn't something that's entirely developed by some outside source and just passively poured into your head. Thinking routines demonstrate, and they actually enact, the essential connection between active learning and knowledge building. And that's an important message to communicate to learners. Okay, well, we've mentioned some of the standout factors of thinking routines. We talked about the sticky factor, the everyone everywhere factor, the visibility factor, and the epistemology factor. Dave, should we say something about where thinking routines come from and where to find them? Sure. Well, thinking routines were developed originally 
as part of the early visible thinking work, as we mentioned a minute ago. Ron Richard worked on that project with Shari and me, and he and Mark Church and Karen Morrison have nicely extended that work. Ron, in particular, has built out the notion of cultures of thinking. As some listeners may know, Project Zero, our academic home, has various researchers that work on more than one project and with different working groups over time. So beyond the Visible Thinking Project, over the years, the development and use of thinking routines has spread to other Project Zero projects. These include, for instance, Artful Thinking, Leading Learning That Matters, the Learning Innovations Laboratory, Agency by Design, Arts as Civic Commons. Let's see, there's Veronica Boxmancia's work on global competence and global thinking routines. Perhaps most recently, Project Zero's newest work on digital well-being. Listeners may remember the last episode, Teens and Screens guests Emily Weinstein and Carrie James. They were talking about using thinking routines to help teens be thoughtful about their social media use. It's also worth adding that lots of organizations outside Project Zero are using thinking routines all the time in schools and museums. The list could be long, but just to name a few on the museum front, there's the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C. that uses a lot of thinking routines, quite a lot in their public programming. There's the Philadelphia Museum of Art. Thinking routines are used at our own Harvard Art Museums here on uh, the Harvard campus. In terms of schools, they're sort of all over the place. In fact, I'm sure there are many, many listeners who could create longer lists than we can. But just to mention two school consortiums that are, are somewhat prominent, there's the BC Project Zero Network, sometimes called DCPZ, which is a network of educators in the Washington, D.C. area that's coordinated by Jim Reese. And then there's the Independent Schools Victoria group in the state of Victoria in Australia that does quite a lot with their network of schools and thinking routines. So turning to a really practical question, if you'd like to get your hands on some thinking routines, where can you do that? Where's the easy access? Well, some of the Project Zero projects we've mentioned will have them on their project page. For instance, Artful Thinking, Arts as Civic Commons, Agency by Design, also, on the Project Zero website, there is a thinking routine toolbox, which has a whole bunch and is a great repository. Another source, Ron Richard's Making Thinking Visible site, has an abundant supply of thinking routines. And yes, there are others, but there's some tips. Well, maybe it's time to sum up. Let's see. To sum up what thinking routines are, they are short, two or three, sometimes four-step general purpose thinking strategies with very simple labels like See, Think, Wonder. They're designed to foster better thinking and thinking dispositions, as you mentioned early on, Dave. Their simplicity, their engagingness, and their transferability make them really sticky and suitable for almost everyone, almost everywhere in almost every aspect of life, whether it's personal reflection, loosely structured conversation, or formal teaching. I guess we could think of them collectively as a kind of Swiss army knife for thinking. Just like a Swiss army knife, though, this doesn't mean that they do all that might be done about good thinking. For instance, many disciplines have particular patterns of thinking important to them, such as the form that evidence takes, which is very different in, say, mathematics and history. 
And also some important patterns of thinking are more elaborate than thinking routines. For instance, the notion in science of hypothetico-deductive reasoning, which is really important. Still, it's good to have that Swiss army knife in your pocket. I like the metaphor. Well, I think that wraps it up for our little introduction to thinking routines. Thank you for listening. We'll be back in a few weeks. And next time we come back, we plan to talk about a topic called expansive thinking. And when we get there, we'll tell you what we think it is, why it's important, and often an overlooked dimension of good thinking. And we'll talk about how to cultivate it. We hope you'll join us. We appreciate your attention. And as always, you can find the Thinkability podcasts on the Project Zero website or on Substack or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. See you later, Shari. See you later, Dave.